Good. Okay. There we go. You can hear me. Good. All right. Well, like Dale said, we're carrying on our series in Transform Livings, which runs alongside the book, if you're unaware. Um, and it's been, uh, it's been great so far. But the thing with this series is it's the challenging half of Ephesians. So are you ready? Okay, good. Well, if you're visiting today and you have no idea who I am, I'm pretty new around here. My name is Richie and my wife Raina over there uh, is going to come up and share a little uh, testimony later on uh, as, as it's helpful, particularly on this subject, because we're in Ephesians chapter 5. If you have a Bible, open it. Turn to those pages. If you have a digital one on your phone, find Ephesians 5 while I'm just ambling along here, because it's really important that we read God's holy word. We need to let this word Go in and touch our hearts. So while you're searching, slow yourself down. And if you're comfortable to, put your hand over your heart, because I'm going to pray for us. Father, we gather to you this morning and say through your holy word and by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you come and speak to us? Come and penetrate our hearts with truth. Help us to read your word with sober judgment, knowing the love that you have for us. Lord, I want to learn today. I want to learn to, to know your word and to obey it and to walk with you and to have the joy that you promise is available to me. So come and bless me now in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. If you prayed that this morning, be expectant. God will answer that prayer. All right, well, one of the things I wanted to do to help us today is to try and understand the context of where we are in Ephesians, because, does this go up? Yes, it does. In Ephesians, we can read very easily the text, but in our context. And if we don't understand the context of the day and the city of, of Ephesus, then we're really going to struggle to get to grips with what Paul is trying to teach us. So to understand what's going on here in Ephesus, we need to know about that place. And one of the things you need to know about it is it is a very, very desirable place to live in the ancient world, okay? Very desirable. In fact, the word Ephesus means desirable. Did you know that? That's what it means. Here it is, this great seaport, okay? It's a place of great commerce and prosperity. It's situated on the Aegean Sea at the end of the Casper River. It's really well connected. It's a bit like, if you like, for a modern day term, our Southampton, an awful lot comes in and an awful lot goes out. It's a place of great commerce. There's one road heading out to the east, goes towards Babylon and Laodicea. You'll have remembered reading those in your Bible. You've then got roads going to the north, to Smyrna. You've got roads going to the south, where the Meander Valley is. This place is well connected. M3, M4 into London. Okay, imagine all this commerce coming in and going out. All right, you're visualizing. It's a strategic place of wealth and prosperity. It's a very important place. And here we read about Paul coming into this prosperous city and planting a church. And you can read about that in the book of Acts around AD 52. This is when this starts to all take place. Paul has now visited uh, Ephesus after leaving Corinth, and it says that he plants a church there, Acts chapter 18. And then what happens is Paul goes away for a little bit and he comes back again now in AD 54, just a couple of years later, and he stays around for two or three years and he comes to serve the church apostolically to lay apostolic foundations of doctrine, truth and practice. That's what Paul's there to do. And so here he is in this city 
gathering the elders, gathering the church and saying, this is how you're to exist as believers in Christ in this pagan city. And he lays these foundations for the church there. He spends his time addressing false doctrines. Because one of the things, if you've read your Bibles, you'll realize that a lot of that creeps in. Creeps in again and again. It's no different from today. False doctrines creep into the church. Paul's addressing that. And he's also addressing the cultural influences of the day, which I'm not going to go too much into, but there's a lot of pagan worship. There's a lot of worship of, uh, of, a, of a god, uh, a female god. Women are elevated um, uh, in ways that aren't helpful and healthy. And Paul says, come on, we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And this is his way of us living out his mandate on the earth. We know that Paul is very successful in his teaching as well. You can read about that in Acts 19. It says so much so that actually people are now bringing their books of magic and they're burning them. Okay, they're taking their pagan things and they're burning them as a sacrifice of repentance before God. Say, I belong to Jesus. This stuff doesn't belong in me anymore. We also know that Paul has a major dust up with the silversmiths. Because what happens is, is that they can't get their silver idols made and sold in the way that they have been doing. These people are turning around and saying, no, no, no. Pagan idols and pagan gods are no longer part of my life. My new way of life is to Christ Jesus. And these silversmiths get the raving up because they're losing business. And we read about Paul basically having a dust-up with these guys about the whole thing. It's around Acts chapter 20. Uh, or no, maybe 19. 19 it is. And then it says that Paul goes in AD 57. He leaves the, the church there, he's now established something and he goes away again. And then in the following year, AD 57, he meets together with the elders from the Ephesus church. They gather on the island of Miletus. They gather together and it's Paul's farewell to these elders. It's the last time these elders are going to be with someone who they absolutely love. These men of gentle heart wanting to follow Christ are gathered together and they're with Paul. And you can imagine this, this great guy who they've learned so much from, taken so much from, saying... I'm not coming back, guys, because there's more to do in the, in the world. And there's this lovely tender moment there where they spend time together in Acts chapter 20. And then Paul writes to the Ephesian church in around AD 62. So it's 10 years after this church has been planted. So do you feel like you've got a bit of background? And that's where we are. We're now 10 years after this church has been planted, give or take a bit of time. And Paul's writing into this church, and that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 5. And we, as we've read through the book of Ephesians, particularly the early parts, Paul's speaking about how well the church has done. He's commending them for what they've done, who they are in Christ Jesus, for the work that they've done. And he goes on to give us these instructions about what it is now to be this new man in Christ, as we read about in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you're now one new man in Christ. You Jews and Gentiles are now one new man. You've come from all backgrounds, all religions, all upbringings, all classes. And Jesus says, you're all one in Christ Jesus. Paul's writing in that way to this church, and then he goes on to lay this foundation. And the verses today are about marriage, largely, marriage and the home. And I'm going to particularly labor on the marriage verses, because I believe if you get that bit right, everything else follows. Is that Okay. So nobody's it's good. If you're not married in this place, do not switch off because I will pick on you. Stay alert. All right. Verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 5 says this. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, hallelujah, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives. What a calling. As their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father, uh, sorry, leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Say one flesh. You're paying attention. Good. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And he goes on to speak about parenting now. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. That's the first first commandment that we read with a promise, okay? That it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger and bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. We have quite a few verses, all right? We're going to hunker down into probably less than half of them. Because I don't think anyone here is a master and has a servant. It's relevant if you're a boss, though. Pay attention. There's a lot to unpack, isn't there? A lot there. Paul's using three illustrations, essentially, to make the same point over and over again. And the point is this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That was verse 21. And that's the point he's unpacked for the following, whatever it is, 18 verses. Paul's using an imagery here, particularly through marriage, to speak into the life of uh, this life of holiness and this God-given union that he has for us. He uses the marriage image so that we can get to understanding what he really means. And in verse 22, it says, wives, submit to your own husbands. How many times have you ever heard someone say, wives, submit to, uh, sorry, <laughs> wives, submit to your husbands, but it says your own husband. People misquote that bit. They miss out the own sometimes. And it's, uh, it's a misquote that has quite different connotations. Submit to your own husband. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And one of the saddest things that I have seen, and if you've been around a long time in the world or even in Christendom, is that this can really lose its true meaning. 
Wives, submit to your husbands is not an easy sell in this day and age, is it? It's not. It's very, very countercultural to say that. In fact, it's offensive. For thousands of years, this has been mistreated. Men have mistreated women for thousands of years. Subjugated women, treated them poorly, second class. And you only have to read your history books to, to figure that out, right? I'm not incorrect in saying this. And so you come against this backdrop of women being completely put under in every way. And then you read this verse that basically, if we're not careful, we'll go, well, you're taking me back under something that was an unequal yoke. You're trying to take me back under something that isn't blessing, it isn't freedom. You're trying to take me back into something that confines me, restricts me, and doesn't see me as I really am in Christ Jesus. And I want us to come away from some of that understanding because that's not what's in the text. And we will get there. Let me say this, misogyny must die. Has no place in God's church. But we need to take what Scripture says, what God says, this is the way for a happy home and life, and apply it. So how do we do that? Who here has ever put their back out? Now, I should say that this is ironic, okay, because I pre prepared this message a couple of weeks ago, and you'll find out why this is kind of funny in a moment. But who here has ever put their back out? Yeah, badly? Yeah, to the point where you wince, and you can barely move. And what do you do in that moment? You walk around really gingerly, you, you want to cry, don't you? Yes, Jane, you do. You take painkillers like the clappers and it doesn't seem to touch it. And if it's bad enough for long enough, you'll go off to the chiropractor and they very kindly decide to take their elbow and just ram it into the place that hurts, try and work across the muscle, hit all the nerve endings, get everything firing until hopefully it releases, yeah? Well, these scriptures can be a bit like that to our hearts and our minds. It might feel a little bit like that today and that's okay. This is holy scripture and it's to come and take us to where God would have us be, not us to take the world and say, well, let's find something that's more palatable for me. It might be uncomfortable. Now, the word submission, our association with language is really important on this. Yeah? Because submission's a bit of a dirty word, isn't it? If you think about it. So if you're into MMA, mixed martial arts, submission basically means someone gets you on the floor and twists your arm or leg so hard until it's going to break that you tap out. Yeah? That's submission in MMA, so let's just understand that Lewis is nodding. Yeah, been there, haven't you, bro? That's what happens in that scenario. That's what submission means in that context, but that doesn't help us today. Or what about if you're a tax accountant? Ooh. Submission means a tax return. Ooh. That's just lifeless and boring, isn't it? We need to get away from that language. That's not what we're talking about here. What is the submission that is being talked about by Paul in this context? We must get the right understanding. And I'm going to use a word today that my wife has told me off for throughout this week, as I've mentioned it. She said, you don't use this word often, but I want to because it's so helpful. And this word is deference. It basically means submission out of respect. All right? So hold that for a moment. Submission out of respect. Because you actually see this in the Godhead, this deference, this submission and respect in their unity. And I'll touch on that a bit later on. And submission in Christian marriage is not tapping out because you've just had enough and you can't be bothered to fight anymore. Or it's not giving up because someone's nagged so long and so hard you just go, oh, stuff it. I submit. I quit. I can't be bothered. Fighting's too much like hard work. I'll just submit and roll over. That's not what Christian marriage is to be. 
And it happens, sadly, more often than you realise. Sometimes I listen to some conversations I hear between couples, Christian and non-Christian, and I wince and I think, oh, you just totally emasculated that person or you just totally put your wife down. That's so wrong. And it hits a nerve because it doesn't echo what God intends for marriage. This is what submission looks like, okay? Submission from a wife is only possible when there is deference, so respect, from her husband. When a wife feels valued, listened to, and respected, when her fears and concerns and opinions have been heard and understood, men, only then will you find that submission is possible within your marriage. Properly. Because you have shown her that you are a team, that you are united and you are together in seeking this solution. It's much easier to submit in marriage when you know that you're loved and that your welfare and your betterment is at the very heart of your spouse. Amen? We might not like it, but proven and consistent leadership from a place of trust is the key to success here. And I'm going to ask Raina to slowly make her way up here. And the reason I'm going to say slowly is because I told you about the back problem. Raina put her back out really, really badly on Wednesday this week. And so she's going to very gingerly make it up here. It's quite a miracle she's here, if I'm honest. So smile at her. She's in a lot of pain. Yeah, nice trip hazard. mic for you. Um, just, just by way of um, testimony really as well, um, I um, have struggled with the concept of submission um, in the past. Um, my first marriage was definitely not centred in God. Um, and I found it really hard to submit. Um, but actually, after that point, um, it, it felt safer for me to be in control, safer for me to make decisions, safer for me to either, you know, take the hits or the victories and say, well, actually, that was in my control. So when Richie and I got married, um, it was quite hard for me to hand stuff over, as you can imagine. Um, and I've got to say, it actually took some time. God is so good like that, that he's so patient with us and he teaches us. It, it doesn't have to be an overnight thing. It's a, it can be a long-term working this stuff into us. And yeah, that's what good. he did with me. Um, but... Obviously, reading this passage um, in Ephesians 5, and I just want to, excuse me, I'm, in um, the first verse, actually, of chapter 5, is, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, what Paul could have done then is actually rolled up his scroll and sat down, because that's <laughs> basically the gist of the whole thing. Um, but he didn't. And I, I don't know if you've ever bought anything online and you've read a review and you get the first line of the review and then you get this word that says expand and you can read the rest of the review, a full review. And that's what Paul's done. <laughs> he said, be 
imitators of Christ, then he's pressed expand. Yeah, and it's all dropped out of actually this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. Now, everything in us, um, our human nature, humility is very alien, <laughs> very alien. But what Paul is saying is this is actually what you're being asked to do. It's humility. Um, I found this book really helpful. Sorry, hon. Um, I don't know if any of you have read it, You and Me Forever. Francis Chan. Francis Chan. Well, it's actually Francis and Lisa Chan. And it's about marriage in the light of eternity. And I found this really helpful. Um, what they do in each chapter is they split up and, and um, Francis talks a, a bit about the subject and then Lisa talks about it. So I'm going to talk to you about something Lisa wrote in this, on this subject. And she's put, so many women focus on what submission does not mean and they never embrace what it does mean. For many years, I taught a class for wives at our church on what it means to be a godly wife. It took me a long time but I eventually realized that if we were truly humble people, we wouldn't need a class like that. That maybe we were overthinking the wife part and underthinking who Christ calls us all to be in light of his example. Underneath every struggle and every discussion was this subtle realization that being like Christ would solve a whole lot of our problems. There are healthy discussions to be had on the subject of roles in marriage. We obviously want to understand what the Bible is saying as clearly as possible. I don't want to circumvent those discussions, but this is how I like to think of it as a wife. There is no better way to stand apart from non-believers than in the way we respectfully submit to our husbands. We display our trust in Christ and God's word powerfully, when we embrace his instruction to submit to our husbands as to the Lord. Without question, this is countercultural in America, where they are. And the reality is, if we truly desire to follow Jesus, we will definitely not fit in with this culture. Here are a few good principles for thinking through the call to submission. They're just five small things. Number one, when we submit, we are respectfully submitting to a God-given pos position and not perfection. Yeah, In other words, our husbands are going to make mistakes. They will not always deserve to be the leader in our eyes, but God will always deserve our obedience to him in this way. And since the command to submit comes from God, our submission is ultimately to him. Number two, only our submission to God should be absolute. We're not meant to submit to our husbands if they ask us to sin, get drunk, lie, cheat on taxes, etc. We must obey God rather than human beings. Number three, we are designed to help our husbands and to accomplish so much more together. God decided that it was not good for the man to be alone, so he created a helper fit for Adam. Embrace your God-given role. Give your husband the benefit of your insight, wisdom, and perspective. But also give him the freedom to move and lead in the direction he feels God is leading. There is no safer place, this is number four, there is no safer place to be than in the will of God. 
If we know God has asked us to submit to our husbands, we follow God in that, even though we may be fearful. Ultimately, more women find themselves fighting against God rather than their husbands. And that's a big reason why so many women are miserable. <laughs> not sure I agree with that. God, sure has, it's not true. God has carefully crafted every aspect of marriage, and we need to learn to trust Him. Number five. The biblical concept of submission does not put your husband in the place of God. If a woman finds herself being subjected to abuse, she shouldn't hesitate to involve the authorities that can hold her husband accountable. accountable. But I also want to encourage every wife to believe that God can bring restoration and healing in even the most hopeless of situations. Yeah, I love the way she just rounds it up at the end as she's put, Ultimately, we entrust ourselves to God. It's pretty astounding that Jesus himself willingly submitted to the Father in order to accomplish his purposes. When I'm tempted to complain or wonder why women are given the role of submission, and I've done that quite a lot, I'm reminded that our Saviour himself said, I do nothing on my own authority, John 8:28. And I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6:38. Submission is beautiful when we realize we are imitating Christ. Though he rightfully possessed all glory, he willingly laid it aside in Philippians 2. If anyone deserved to be treated a certain way, it was him. And yet he gladly placed himself in submission to the Father... How incredible is that? Take your eyes off of the world long enough to let the truth of Scripture take root in your heart. And all, and all that said, I truly believe that our roles in marriage should be de-emphasized in light of the most pressing calling of all believers to be Christ-like. Yeah. Remember that we are all commanded to be humble and we are all commanded to submit to one another. Because Jesus personified these characteristics. The more you grow in your pursuit of Christ-likeness, the more you will naturally live out your God-given role. Yeah. Um, just to say, I, I definitely do find submission easier now. Um, because I do know that actually Richie's heart is for me. And actually he's selfless to make sure that I am promoted, to make sure I'm loved and looked after, just as Jesus does with his church. Um, but it's taken a long time. But I'm, I'm just saying, this is God's pl blueprint, and it works. Yeah. It does work. Okay. Carefully tread. Carefully tread. <laughs> okay, there you go. Don't need to read the book, do you? It's a good book, actually. It comes with a study guide, so, um, yeah. Am I on? I am. Yeah. Okay. So there we go. There's a little bit from the ladies' perspective, but I want to speak for a moment to the men, if I may. Come on. Sure. Get ready. The other threat to marriage, and this is a massive threat in this day and age, is weak men. Men who are afraid to lead. This abdication of responsibility. And it is so damaging to our wives and to our children and to the generations that will follow us. 
Some men take it too far in one direction, just being authoritarian, be rebuked in this moment if that's you. Be convicted, let the Holy Spirit do his work. But equally, if you are a man who just rolls over to take an easy road in life, please let me encourage you today, look to Jesus and say, who am I supposed to be for the sake of my wife, my children, and the witness of the gospel in the world? Men, leading is hard. Who, who here as a man has ever felt afraid at times in your marriage making decisions? Go on, you can be brave. Good, it's all of us then, yeah? So everyone in this room who looks like they have it together doesn't always have it together. We all desperately need Jesus to lean on, don't we? There are so many moments when you go, I am out of my depth, help. But what a privilege that we have somewhere to go for that help. It's much easier for a husband to lead his wife if she's willing to follow from a place of trust and security. If you feel like you're dragging her kicking and screaming, it's just awful. As much as I've seen men lead their wives poorly through fear and domineering, I've also equally seen wives who dominate, disrespect and belittle their husbands. And that breaks my heart as well. I mentioned earlier, sometimes you're in conversations and you just wince and go, oh, that's wrong. You haven't lifted them up. You've trodden them down through, that, through those words, through that action. <laughs> we went to dinner once with dear friends of ours, and we'll still keep eating with them. They're not believers, but my goodness, do you see this? It's like a little battle happens over the table. Snarky remarks. And they still love each other to pieces. Been married 40 years. It's their dynamic. But do you know what? You sit there, and you I find myself physically going, oh, oh, low blow. Oh, Oh, well, he's like this. Oh, she, oh, well, she's always up around, nag, 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 nag. You're like, oh, my life. You too, come on. <laughs> so weird. But let me say this. When, when a couple behaves like that, when you're like that to your husband or like that to your wife, so much damage is done one to the other. It can be like slow erosion. It's like that persistent water against the rock. It will find its way through. Something will break eventually. And if this is something you need to address this morning, it's okay Come to God in repentance and say, I think I've got this wrong. And maybe now you need to take a moment just to evaluate. Do I do these things? Am I a nag? Am I snarky? Do I disregard my wife's opinion? Do I lead like a bull in a china shop? Evaluate and go, where am I against God's measuring stick for these things? And Rainer and I, down the years, we've done an awful lot of pre-marriage classes for young couples who want to keep Christ at the center. It's been an incredible privilege. We've done a lot of marriage counseling with couples that have struggled down the years for whatever reason. But one of the things that we say over and over again, and this is a central principle for everything that I believe about marriage, is this. I'll bring it down to one simple phrase. It takes two selfless people to make a marriage work. Boil it down, that's what it comes down to. If you want to look at anything that erodes your marriage, I can promise you it will find itself in selfishness and pride somewhere there. Pride is selfishness, isn't it? I'm first, they're second. It takes two selfless people to make a marriage work. If one party in the marriage is selfless and the other one is not, it doesn't work. If both parties are selfish, it explodes. Seen that happen. I want it my way, I want it my way, I'm not going to change, it's just the way I am. Who said that? I've said that before now, I've told myself off as well. It's a journey of selflessness 
into, uh, selfish, from selfishness into servanthood. That's one of the things that's uh, in, the, in the book about this subject. And what Paul is saying is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's remind ourselves of that. This is our reverence for Christ. So wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, hear me when I say this. And young men who are aspiring to be married, there's some of you in the room. Your wife, your love for your wife is to be sacrificial. That's what it takes. It's to be one of protection for her. It's to be one that brings safety and security, dignity and self-worth. If you're doing those things, keep going. Always be pursuing these things. Yeah, come on. Be pursuing these things. You're to provide for her and to protect her. It's, it's a man instinct, actually. Very caveman. Hunt, gather, protect, wife. <laughs> Hide in bedroom, play PlayStation. No. <laughs> no. Hunt, gather, protect. Slightly different from caveman days, but that's, a, that's an, a, an inbuilt principle. God put it there. There's something about that. And to provide and to protect your wife doesn't mean you have to be the biggest earner. It means you have to provide and protect. It means you have to protect her feelings. You have to protect her honor. You have to protect her physically as well, okay? There's many aspects to this. It's not just one-dimensional. You need to make sure that your wife's physical, spiritual, emotional needs are met at the very least. There's so much more I could say. This Christ-likeness, that's what we're aiming for. You're to create an environment in which your wife is to flourish. Any wives flourishing in this place? Don't put your hands up, men, because you might have <laughs> men shoving their wife's hand up. <laughs> You're to show your wife and to model to her how to follow Jesus. Did you know that, men? We have a responsibility to lead our wives, even in their walk with God. They're responsible for their own walk with God, before God, but you're to lead her and say, come, this is what Jesus says. Let's pray. Let's do this. No, we're going to take the hard road here. We're not going to cheat on our taxes. We're not going to do this. We're going to do things Jesus' way. I'll lead you. I'll protect you. I'll take the hits when they come. I'll stand at the front. You can go behind. It's fine, but we go together. Husbands, lead your wives sacrificially. There's a phrase in leadership, if you want to call the shots, you better be willing to take the shots. Men, if you're going to lead, you're going to take a few hits down the years sometimes. You won't get everything right. And every man in here can testify to that. But you lead the best you can in honor of God and knowing your responsibility to your wife. It's a high calling, isn't it? And it's scary if you haven't got the Holy Spirit living inside you, guiding you. Lay down your life. That's what we're talking about. And Paul goes on, verses 28 and 29, and times against us, to talk about loving our own flesh, nourishing our own bodies. Some of us men really like to do that with a fine fillet steak and a good red wine. Isn't that right, Peter? <laughs> Had to pick on someone. Just kidding. Maybe it's diet and exercise. That's your thing. That's how you love and nourish yourself. You're driven for that. Well, even with the same drive perhaps you have for some of those things that you enjoy, you need to do so much more to invest in your own marriage. 
I heard a great phrase the other week, and I know that Ethan's going to listen to this back, okay, because I, I tapped him up this morning, but he's had to leave to play tennis. But there he was, a couple of speakers in hand, giving it the old woof the other week. He just looked at me and went, the curls are for the girls. That's what he said. So there we go, Ethan. You've been absolutely outed. Curls are for the girls. Brilliant. Just remember the amount of effort you went to when you were dating or wanting to date your wife. Yeah, men are sort of like, tuck it in a bit. Went to a lot of trouble, didn't we? Used to dress nice, smell nice, look good, hair was on point. And now it's all gone a bit, maybe. You go to a lot of effort in the infatuation stage. I always say it's about relationships. The first two years, it's infatuation. Then you find out if there's love afterwards. You often find relationships will break down after those two years because everything that was so exciting and just was driving all of your instincts has suddenly dropped right the way off. And what's left? And actually, once infatuation's gone and you're in this place of love, if you're not careful to cultivate that, even that can start to just become mundane, a bit boring, a bit lifeless, whatever else. Life gets busy, stuff happens. And actually, maybe there's something in the fact of we put an awful lot of effort into finding our wives, dating our wives, making them our wives, that we need to keep on doing all the days of our lives. Hopefully, you're still dating your wife even now, many years later. Yeah, it's a good principle, isn't it? It's not easy all the time. Life is hard, it's busy, but it is absolutely what is necessary to keep your marriage alive. So I'm going to ask a couple of questions to the wives first. Are you gladly submitting to your husbands? And if not, why? Husbands, are you sacrificially and diligently leading your wife? Are you leading her in Christ-like love? And if not, why? Are you both selflessly striving for the betterment of the other? And if not, why? I'm really aware of how much time's against us. I need to wrap up in a moment, don't I? I was going to speak about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, their relationship, their submission, their unity, their deference. I'll speak on that another day. But in the same way that there's that relationship in our Godhead, and that's who we look to for our example here, so it's to be in our marriages. It really is. This sense of selflessness, understanding our roles, but you are united, you are a team. You are one flesh. Today, the point that the Apostle Paul wants us to understand is that in Christian biblical marriage, the husband is the head of the wife. The wife is to submit to her husband's leadership and authority, and husbands are to love their wives to the point of death, sacrificially and sparing nothing. You are equal yet you are distinct in your functions, husbands, wives. If you want to be blessed, if you want to be anointed in marriage, then we want to do it God's way. The world hates this stuff. What I'm saying now is so offensive in this culture. 
But by God's grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live a life counter-culturally. One of the things that's been overriding in this whole series that we've been doing is that actually we don't do this stuff for ourselves. We do it for the other. We do it for one another. And we do it for the witness of the gospel in the world. When you live counter-culturally like this, blessing will be where you are. Do you believe that? Just think, you're responsible for your little family unit. I'll pick on Dale and Jane, you've got three girls. And you've modelled something to them all these years about loving, leading, guiding, following, serving, whatever else in between. And now those three girls go into the world going, this is the blueprint for a happy home, this marriage, this way of Christ, and then they multiply. Do you see? Then they multiply. You might be first-generation Christians in your family, but just think of the impacts that you're going to have on the world if you live this way. I've had the privilege of marrying all of my children bar one, standing before them, seeing your daughter looking radiant, seeing your son looking dapper. And one of the things that I've loved about what they say is, I want to have a marriage like you and mum. That's not to big us up, because let me tell you, we've made plenty of mistakes, not got it all right, but we've owned them. But they say, this is what we want to do. And now they're multiplying, and they're living this stuff out in this crucible of life. <laughs> and then their generation will follow, and their generation will follow. Hallelujah. Now, I've spoken a lot about marriage, and I promised I'd stay in that lane, and I'd stay in those verses, and I've not spoken about what it's like to be married to an unbeliever because I didn't want to do a disservice to a subject that requires proper teaching so I deliberately haven't touched on that. I've also not spoken on abuse in marriage because that's a subject that needs its own teaching and sensitivity and it wasn't right to bring that today. I haven't spoken about divorce and remarriage and I hope people aren't sitting here going yeah that's all well and good you saying that Rich but yeah, if you've had a but going in your mind that's Please don't disqualify what I've taught today because this is relevant. And I'll tell you why it's relevant, and I'll finish with this. When I do a marriage for a couple, I read truth, essentially, over them. And one of the paragraphs I'll say really near the beginning is this. In marriage, husband and wife belong one to the other. And they begin a new life together in community. And it's this way of life that all should honor. All should honor and must not be undertaken carelessly, lightly or selfishly, but reverently, responsibly and after serious thought. This way of life lived out in community that all should honor. So if you're not married in this place, can I ask you this, that you would hold marriage in really high place? What I mean by that is, would you honor the institution of marriage? When you see couples around you, would you bless them? And love them. When you see someone struggling, would you get alongside? That's what it means to work this stuff out in community. We share life together. We support one another. We strengthen one another. Amen? I'm stronger because of you guys. And hopefully you're stronger because of us. But we need to honor this thing that is being eroded in this day and age. Why? Because this is God's blueprint because this is a gospel issue, and because this affects the witness in the world. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ.
I don't need to say any more. Would you like me to pray for us? King Jesus, I want to I wanna ask that for each of us, in some way, you'd have put your finger on something that has both challenged us and put your finger on something that has fed us this morning from your holy word. I want to pray from your abundant grace, go with us from this place to strengthen each and every marriage, to strengthen each and every home, to strengthen each and every witness in this place. I want to pray for anyone here who is hurting because marriage has hurt them. I want to pray for anyone who has brokenness, deep sadness because of this institution of marriage just being worked out poorly or somehow breaking. I say, Jesus, you know it all. Come and bring a balm to our hearts. Come and bring truth and cleansing to our minds. Come and lift off any unbelief that is within us. Come and break the chains that say that this thing is broken and wrong. Come and give us fresh resolve for each and every couple in this place to do better, to love deeper, and to love more selflessly than ever before, that we might see you even more glorified in and through our lives. Oh, Jesus, go with us, I pray. Amen. Amen. Good.